Hey everyone, thank you for listening. Business automation has become a cornerstone of modern industry, reshaping how companies operate and deliver services. The advent of artificial intelligence has propelled this transformation, offering both remarkable benefits and presenting new challenges. Nearly 45% of businesses have harnessed automation technologies to trim cost, and approximately one-third reported having completely automated at least one business function. The financial impact is equally telling. The automation systems market is poised to hit $26 billion by 2025. In this episode, we are joined by Quentin Newman, CEO of Capri AI, to discuss how business automation enhances efficiency and carves out new pathways for innovation and cost management. Grab a copy of my new book, Customer Transformation, a seven-stage strategy for customer alignment and business value. This is your essential guide for customer success in the digital age. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or my website. And to support the show, visit chrishood.com slash show. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media, or you can email me directly, show at chrishood.com. I'm Chris Hood, and let's get connected. Connecting. Access granted. It's the Chris Hood Digital Show, where global business and technology leaders meet to discuss strategy, innovation, and digital acceleration. Five, four, three, two, one. Your digital evolution starts now. Here's your host, Chris Hood. Let's meet our guest, Quentin. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my name is Quentin Newman. I'm the founder of Capri AI. Uh, it's a business automation tool that lets you actually train conversational AI assistants to handle things in your business like scheduling appointments, answering frequently asked questions, customer support, all that kind of stuff. Um, we've been doing it for about three years now, and we work with hundreds of businesses or hundreds of agencies that resell to thousands of businesses all, all around the world um, in all different types of industries. Um, and I'm also the founder of DAS, Developers as a Service, where we take that experience of building that product and we share it with other startups who are looking to pursue a similar journey and, and get their idea to a product market fit and then get it um, MVP and actually get it launched. So um, yeah, excited to be here today. Awesome. You have quite the range here from uh, the developer side to the business side and automation, I would say, is in between. I think one of the interesting things when I consider automation is that most organizations understand, recognize the benefits of automation, but when they actually start to build that, they often run into some challenges. Typically with how does that automation get integrated into their existing systems and processes. How should somebody think about this? Yeah, so a lot of it comes down now to your actual initial product selection. So we're actually in kind of this bounce point right now with technology where there's a lot of people that are still using legacy systems that are not getting upgraded and they're not switching over into like open API specs, basically, which means that they can integrate with anything on the internet as long as there is an API documented somewhere that lets you integrate you know, information. And there's great tools out there like make.com is one of my favorites and Zapier is another really, really popular one. But make.com is just a little bit more robust and more technically focused versus Zapier is just like get it working as quickly as possible. 
the initial decision of like, you know, what do I want to integrate this with versus do I want to have a holistic in-house solution? That's kind of the first decision and kind of the first thing you have to think about. And if it's going to come to a point where you know you're going to want to be able to just integrate with anything out, you know, in the future, it's going to be worth a discussion with your provider of whatever you're talking about, right? If you're talking about like a medical provider, like we work with a lot of medical practices that have patient data that's stored instead of like a, you know, a certain type of software that stores just patient data, but it doesn't integrate with anything else. It's a very in-house solution and it's very on-prem. It doesn't, you know, connect with anything. So now there's a lot of decisions being made by practices of like, okay, well, I'm going to have to move to another solution that is more open API because I need to be able to send out automatic patient reminders. I need to be able to do email marketing. I need to be able to do social media marketing and retarget based off of what kind of, you know, procedures they have and who their relationships are with and who their family members are and stuff like that. A lot of it does come down to the decision of the capabilities of the product that you're using before you then decide to go start integrating. So that's like the number one thing you got to figure out is like, can I even pass this data between? And then beyond that, just following RESTful API. It's like the magical connection that brought everything together, you know, a few years ago and gave us solutions like make.com and uh, Zapier. And if it has a RESTful API, there's a good chance you're going to be able to get data in and out of it and you'll be able to tie it to as many other uh, you know, automations as you want. Yeah, I love that you're touching on APIs here because I, I believe there's two different sides to this. There's really an external view of that data flow. And then there's an internal view of that data flow. APIs can act as that mechanism to share that data across different types of entities. Make, I love also, it's a great platform. I would tend to think that that's geared more towards this kind of external based flows, you know, whether it's marketing or sharing of data. Yet you touched on something here, which is still a challenge for a lot of organizations. It's having their own internal APIs that are going to connect to their internal systems and make those internal integrations. There is a great product that's out called Poly API. And what it does is build API integrations leveraging AI. You could basically type in, I need an API that will connect my patient data with my whatever, and it will help to generate and build that API, cutting down time from like three months of API development to a couple of days. Now, this is the power of how AI is coming into the automation process, not just the development side, but the automation side and that integration piece that you're talking about. Is this also something you're trying to help some of your clients with? Yeah. So we're working on with a lot of different clients. Like one of our clients that we have for DAS specifically is a, an attorney. And so he works in a very specific practice of law. And one of the major issues for him and every type of lawyer in his, uh, in his niche is the ability to recall documents easily. Cause like court documents get saved and usually in a PDF format. And even if you save them to a database that can be read, you can't conversationally ask about certain cases like you can't you can't go natural you know use natural language to search you can only search like the court that it was in and like maybe the uh, the codes that it referenced and you know the decision that it was and the date and stuff like that but you can't talk about like you know they use this labor code to defend this type of action let's say or they use this type of caveat of the law to provide this type so what we're doing with ai is you can actually have it have semantic recall through natural language. And so 
what we're doing is like the first challenge we had to overcome is converting all of those PDFs into like structured documents, right? So we have to like make it so that they can actually be stored in a database. But then what we did is made it so that instead of having to just go search through a bunch of different cases and try to find the one that you need, you can type out in the search bar like cases related to XYZ in this county and it'll understand like I don't need to filter by one particular field. I need to like read the whole case and then determine which one semantically is the most similar. And so now that whole firm can just type something very simple and get really accurate results. And then they can also ask questions about the case from the AI. So like it loads the case that you're reading and you say, what are the major you know arguments that are made? And it'll summarize one, two, three, and then it'll link out to the other cases that reference that. So research and data recall has just become so much faster now because we integrated something like that into their workflow where now they don't have to just have legal assistants go out and try to scrape you know, all the cases together that match what they're trying to search. It's able to just have AI immediately do it and present the, you know, rel- the relevant cases on demand to, to make your argument building just that much faster. Now, this brings up two critical areas that I'm sure most people who are listening are thinking about right now. You mentioned healthcare and obviously court documents. There's a sense of privacy ethics that should be considered in establishing some of these flows. If we're just opening this up to AI, what challenges are organizations faced with from a privacy and ethical perspective? Yeah, so a lot of it comes down to what solutions you're using. So like OpenAI famously has still not confirmed their HIPAA compliance yet. So they are not technically covered under HIPAA. But HIPAA is like, and for those who are listening and don't know what HIPAA is, it's like health information, something about personally identifiable information. It's basically uh, a way to protect your medical data. People can't access your medical records without being a licensed physician or something like that. Um, And it covers your the digital transfer of your information as well. And so when a doctor does create a record of you and shares information about your medical history or creates information about you that contains that information, it's supposed to be stored in a very certain way and follow certain regulations and encryption and data masking and all this kind of stuff. And the thing about it is that HIPAA regulations really only cover data at rest. So they don't really talk about necessarily if you have a solution that's just in transit. And so that's kind of where OpenAI gets that gray area is where it's like technically they're not storing the information on their servers long term, according to them, for the API and the playground usage anyway. And so therefore, they're not violating HIPAA. Now, if you use ChatGPT on the browser for medical information, then it's your fault because you're now violating HIPAA by sharing information with a non-HIPAA thing. But with the API, it's a little gray. The same thing with like Zapier and Make is like, you know, it's not technically HIPAA compliant, but it also doesn't store information at rest. And so, you know, it doesn't have to be because it's not considered a threat. And so um, just making sure that whatever is storing the information is encrypted the way that HIPAA has said it needs to be. And I mean, there's another act for legal too. I can't remember exactly what it is, but like there's another similar thing for like legal information and court cases is like, you have to protect the information of the person who's in that case, you know, talk about, especially if it's active and ongoing. Um, so yeah, definitely like making sure that wherever the data is being stored is 
protected, encrypted, has privacy laws that you agree with, all that kind of stuff. And also understanding what the tools you use are doing with that data. So like you need to know if they are storing that data and if they are storing it, are they protected and HIPAA compliant and all that stuff. Um, because at the end of the day, what it's going to come down to, and we talk about this a lot whenever I do like ethics talks about AI, because that's one of the things that I do on a monthly basis is we have a meetup, tech meetup here locally where I live. And we talk about AI and the ethics of it and stuff like that. And the big thing that always comes down to is like, the danger is not the AI itself, but it's the person designing the AI and the person using the AI. You know, if they have malintentions and they want to do bad things with your data, they're going to do bad things with your data, you know? Um, and if they want to teach the AI to use your data in a bad way, then it's really up to them, you know, to do that or not do that. But all we can do is keep these, you know, already defined laws in place and just see it as another tool. You know, we don't need to change the whole landscape of everything just because there's a new, like, there's a new tool, essentially. Yeah. So for those who are not familiar with HIPAA, it stands for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And basically, as you outlined, it defines how data from your health insurance and, and healthcare providers can port, basically, your portability of that data across different entities. Now, what's interesting about this is that the consumer expectation of their data is often different than what the healthcare providers are offering. So, for example, if you go to a doctor and do some type of exam, and then decide to go to a completely different hospital, that data is not directly shared, nor is your healthcare or insurance. Like it's amazing how little healthcare providers are all interconnected with each other. Another way that we could look at this is you have a phone number. We most of us have a phone with a mobile carrier. And today, if you decide to change carriers, you could take your phone number with you. Yet in the same example from a healthcare provider, if you have health insurance and then you go to a new health insurance provider, you can't actually take all of that data with you. It's being blocked partly by HIPAA and it's also being blocked by some of the technologies we're talking about. The interconnectivity of workflows and allowing that to be shared across different systems. So even as a consumer, if I want to share it, in some cases, in most cases, I can't share it. And so you talk about the ethics of, and I agree with you, somebody who has malintentions might build a workflow that meets their criminal desires. But on the flip side, consumers who have the right intentions for what they want to do are still unable to get the workflows or the automation that they're looking for from the companies that they're engaged with. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And it can be a lot of, we're trying to protect consumers, but also hurting them in the same, you know, the same way. And I, I think that's a lot of what's going to kind of come down, you know, the same route with like just what's going on with open AI and chat GPT. And, you know, I don't know if you've seen the New York times is trying to sue open AI for using all their material, copyrighted material and trading on it and stuff like that and not giving them any proper credit and not, you know, like basically monetizing off of it and not giving New York times any piece of it. And so it's like in one 
sense, I would much prefer to talk to a chatbot that has just read the entirety of New York Times and can just tell me interesting stories about stuff that I want to know about. Because my alternative is I have to go search for that on the New York Times site and I have to read the articles and find the stuff that I like. So as a consumer, that's like a way, way better, you know, experience for me to be able to just ask and get information and get links and stuff that direct me exactly to where I need to go. But ethically, that's, you know, hurting the New York Times who they don't, they're not getting all of that browser activity. They're not getting all of that cookie data. They're not getting all the ad revenue for all of the pages that you visit because, you know, you're interested in going down this rabbit hole of stories. So like, Ethically, that's that's technically unfair to the New York Times, and but it's providing a better consumer experience. And so it's like that, like you said, that trade-off that allowing me to get that workflow and that automation of just summarizing the information and linking it more to what I need. So yeah, we uh, I'm I'm super interested to see what's going to happen with with all this stuff. I mean, my my entire app Capri runs mostly on ChatGPT as the backbone. Uh, we use OpenAI for our AI provider and. We'll see what happens if they make them retrain the model without the New York Times data and without all these, you know, it's going to, it's going to set the precedent moving forward for what's allowed and what's not allowed. Yeah, I guess the argument is, is New York Times a news organization and, or is it an advertising organization? In which case, if you say it's an advertising organization that is designed to make money, then there's an ethical dilemma about what's actually considered news that's coming out of their organization. You can look at this a lot of different ways. I think the defining point is who do you give credit to? We have definitely reached a Pandora's box and it's already out. Exactly. And so what I'm seeing the argument come down to a lot of is like, not so much of like, you know, put Genie back in the bottle and make it so that this doesn't happen anymore and large language models can't be used. It's more of like, you if you train a model on somebody's data and then you monetize off of that model usage you have to pay the original person who generated the content that you trained that model with and like open ai is charging on an api usage basis especially for all of their products like all their models but then they also have the gpt plus thing i mean they're making millions probably close to tens of millions in just monthly usage from all of their different model products and stuff. And so that's where the copyright issue comes in. Cause like fair use is fair use. You know what I mean? Like if you just recreate somebody's work and you don't charge for it or anything like that, it's like, you're not going to get sued for copyright violations just because you quoted somebody. As long as it's like, like if I'm in a comedy show or something like that and I quote you as part of my show, as long as that's not my whole show, I'm not going to get sued for that. Right. Because it's like, I didn't just violate the copyright of your, of your work. I just referenced it as part of my work. But with a model, with a large language model, the primary functionality of it is to summarize the works. And like, so that's where, that's where it's like this, like, gray area of like there is a negative mono, uh, like a negative financial effect being felt by the original creators of the works is less people need to spend time on their site if the person who retrained the model off of their data is like offering it better so yeah i don't know we're gonna we're gonna see what happens meta and google seem to be like holding back a lot like facebook you know they're they're launching like open source models where you can't sue them because it's open source so 
there's nothing, there's no copyright violation there, you know, like there's nothing you can do. And, um, Google is just like, they've got it set up really nice where they just have like a marketplace of models basically. And then they have the infrastructure around it. And if it comes to a point where they can't technically charge for the model usage, they'll just be like, okay, well, here's the infrastructure you need to run that model. And this is what we're going to charge you for that. And it's going to end up being the exact same type of revenue. And they're not going to be able to get sued because it's an open source model. When we start to think through the automation process for organizations, how does a business know when they're successful with that process? Yeah, so a lot of it is going to be time. So time is going to be the biggest indicator of it being a return on investment. And then so you can measure that time in a lot of ways. Um, a lot of the processes, if it's like product focused stuff, it's like day sales outstanding because you have a lot of automations built around your billing system, for example. So now you get your invoices paid quicker because you set up a lot of automations to follow up with your clients when it's not paid on time, or you don't need your team to send them an invoice manually because you have an automation sending it instead. And so now you're, the amount of time it takes for you to get paid is physically shorter. And so you can measure that based off of when you implemented the automation you know, and then you measure some time afterwards and you can physically see how much more money you collected in that time period and have, you know, invoices paid on time. So it just depends on what your automation is. Like for us with Capri, our focus is entirely on the conversational aspect of the business. And so if you have higher reply rates, shorter response times, higher appointments booked from leads, right? So if you have like website visitors turning into a booked appointments more, you can calculate those conversion rates because that's what the automation was designed to improve on. So it depends on the segment of your business that you're applying the automation to, but those are the main things that you should be looking at is it all kind of comes down to, to time. That's usually where automation is going to be best. In the process of reducing points of touch and improving the speed of a particular action, are we conflicted with potentially eliminating roles within the organization? I mean, as a startup, if you're a party of one or two, you want to try to streamline that as much as possible. But if you're a larger organization of a thousand people, and obviously I think a lot of people are fearing that AI is going to replace my job. Well, if we're automating a bunch of jobs, is that going to actually directly impact our headcount? It could. I would say a lot of people that are signing up for our AI solution are... Um, either eliminating or not hiring new support employees or sales employees from usually they're from overseas. So from like the Philippines or from South America or something like that. So they're no longer hiring people to do that role or they're moving the people that they hired to do that into a different role that they normally would have to hire more people for. So like a lot of times you got to hire somebody for texting and calling, for example, and now you only need somebody for calling. And so you can either fire that texting person and put all the work on the one caller, or you can move the texter to be another caller. And now you have two callers who can give you that much more bang for your buck, essentially, because you have somebody full-time texting and two people full-time calling. And now you can just get more contact and that. So it's, it's up to you as a business to decide, you know, what you do with your labor and how you distribute it. But overall, as with any new technology, we're going to lose headcount for sure. And like, there's going to be less people to do mundane jobs that are repetitive and, you know, can be easily defined for an AI to do. Um, 
So yeah, we'll see what the overall effect on that is, but there's definitely going to be a migration of labor. People are going to be forced out of jobs that they've been able to do for a long time simply because they need it. They had to. That was the only solution. But in theory, we also need people who are going to build those integrations, build those workflows, maintain those workflows. You could also argue that there's a plus one to the headcount. Yeah, it depends on your time scale, I would say, because like there there needed to be a lot of people to build whatever was the replacement to switchboards, like routers, you know, like call routers. There used to be switchboard operators. And at one point, there were definitely people getting fired, probably slower than people were getting hired to build the new switchboards. But then eventually, the rate did go to where there's just new switchboards and no new switchboard operators. And so the technology did eventually take over, you know, 100% of the roles for that particular industry. But a lot of those people still moved on to work in the telecommunications industry and do something more exciting than just switching plugs around. You know, they got to do more fun jobs. Well, you actually bring up a great point. Automation, if we were to oversimplify this, automation has been around for a long time. It's just coming in different types of technologies. Really, this is just part of the normal process, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, this is the the traditional evolution of technology is just going to continue to, you know, remove people from uh, just automated, like roles that can be automated. Um, And uh, I mean, there's a lot of arguments around like, where is it going to go in 10, 20 years, right? Like, how far does it scale? Because I mean, farming equipment can be automated now, right? Like a lot of medicine can be automated now, a lot of you know, a lot of stuff, customer support, sales, like things that used to require people can all be automated now. And so you're talking about such a large majority of the economy being impacted by this one technology. So it we'll see like that, that's, that's yet to be seen. And also where it goes into robotics, like once we start adding this stuff into actual robots that can manipulate the environment without us, and you can talk to it, like you can talk to a person now we have a lot more capacity for what we can train these things to do and the jobs they can take over. And so, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of conversation that has to be had. There's going to have to be a lot of discussion where it's like, what is the net benefit on society if we implement this, right? Like who is it really going to help the most? Who's it going to hurt the most? What's the status of like, do we need as many people employed as possible or do we, still have a job shortage like what's the conditions of society and you know we kind of just have to weigh all of that when we make decisions but at the same time it's like if anything has taught us that if there's one lesson that we've been taught from technology and its progression over the last few years it's that like no regulation doesn't work but over regulation definitely doesn't work like everybody keeps talking about this as like the next new social media like there was no regulation around social media when it first launched. And then now there's all these data privacy concerns. And so it's like, how are we going to prevent something like that happening with the rise of AI by getting ahead of it and over-regulating it? But then it's like, we over-regulated nuclear power to the point that we nobody can really take advantage of it anymore, except the government and the military. And so that did not help the production of a very positive, you know, could, could be really, really good for society because of the fear. And so we have to find that happy medium. That's like, we allow for the progression to happen. We allow for all this new stuff to come out, but we don't let it just completely take over and allow nothing else to happen. 
Well, soon you'll be served your cheeseburgers out of McDonald's by a robot, and it will be completely automated. Individuals are still looking for a human connection. They're not completely ready to go full robotic automation, Terminator style. And as long as we have a foundational view and understanding of that human connection, then I think AI will only take us so far not completely erase us off the planet. Yeah, I agree. I I think at least for now, I see it being a very supplemental technology. I see it being very, very good at automating processes like like that law firm. I mean, now they can, if they wanted to, they can take one, two routes. They can lower their prices because it takes less hours to complete a case, or they can now have a higher margin because it takes less hours to complete a case and they charge the same amount and they can take on more clients and help more people for the same amount that they used, like the same amount of time that used to take them to help one people. Now they can, or one person, now they can help three. And so it's like one way or another, it's a net benefit. More people benefit because of this technology, but it's still not replacing the attorney. The attorney has to be the one to use the technology and provide the service. And so that's what we're seeing. And I think that's what we'll see for the next, at least for the next few years. And then uh, we'll see, maybe Sam Altman will prove me wrong though. And he'll (laughs) create AGI. And (laughs) from there, who knows what happens. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And of course, thanks to all of you who are listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. Your feedback helps us improve and grow. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for the show, you can connect with us throughout social media and online at Chris Hood Show. And please share this episode with your friends, family, colleagues, or anyone else looking to grow their business and start their own digital evolution. Until next week, take care and stay connected.